so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast of the Research Institute of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve here as a senior fellow in Christian ethics. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weekly tech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Brandon Smith to talk about his new volume for being H academic entitled The Trinity in the Canon. Today, we discuss the vital role that Trinitarian theology plays in Scripture and how it should produce in us both right doctrine as well as right living. Brandon was recently named to the faculty at Oklahoma Baptist University as an associate professor of theology and early Christianity. He will also serve as the chair of the Hobbes School of Theology and Ministry. He currently serves as an assistant professor of theology and New Testament at Cedarville University in Ohio. He's also the author of The Trinity in the Book of Revelation, Seeing Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in John Apocalypse. He also serves as the co-editor of the Christian Standard Commentary Series. He's the co-founder of the Center for Baptist Renewal and hosts the Church Grammar Podcast. He earned his PhD from Ridley College and is a graduate of Dallas Baptist University in Criswell College. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Brandon, thank you so much for joining us today here on the Digital Public Square. I'm really excited about this conversation, one, because I've wanted to have you on the podcast for a while. Um, I love the work that you're doing through CBR, a lot of the work that you've been publishing, especially recently on the Trinity. And this volume is a really special collection of a number of essays from noted scholars kind of across the field, exploring the nature of this, the Trinitarian understanding of God throughout really the entirety of Scripture. But before we dive into that specifically, I want to hear a little bit about your story, kind of your background, kind of your journey into academia and teaching, and then what really kind of fixed you on this idea of the Trinity and the doctrine of the Trinity and kind of focus so much of your work on it. Yeah. Well, Jason, thanks for having me on. We've been buddies for a while. I used to go to church together for a little bit there, so always a good excuse to hang out. So, um, yeah, so I didn't grow up in a Christian home, became a Christian in my teens when my parents got divorced. My dad started going to church and uh, I started going with him. And so um, became a Christian in, in my teens, didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life after that, graduated from high school uh, sort of magically and uh, took a year off, uh, worked, you know, I, I sold pool tables, I managed a Lids hat store, I worked at Abercrombie. I uh, waited tables, I worked at UPS, you know, I just kind of did all kinds of things for a couple of years there. And then when I was about 21, I guess, had sort of a radical, uh, maybe not conversion, but at least kind of a, an awakening. 
Uh, I don't think I think I was a believer as a team, but I went on a pretty hardcore prodigal period after high school. Had a pretty dramatic sort of come to Jesus moment, literally uh, in my early twenties. And uh, pretty quickly after that, I thought, okay, I, I want to get my life together. I can't just be going and getting drunk and goofing around and making minimum wage. You know, if I actually want to like have a life and a family, I need to figure this stuff out. And I think that was the Lord kind of prompting me in some ways just to be the kind of person he called me to be in general. So long story short, I started listening, I started going back to church. I started listening to, you know, sermon CDs and things like that. Uh, Matt Chandler was becoming pretty big uh, in the DFW area around that time, around 06, 07. And um, so I started going to his church on Saturday nights, was going to my Methodist church on Sunday mornings. And, you know, just in the middle of that, I felt like, man, I, I feel called to ministry. I feel like what, what these guys were doing, preaching the gospel, changed my life. That's what I want to do for other people. And so that, you know, again, long story short, kind of turned into, okay, I want to go into pastoral ministry. And then my first year at Dallas Baptist as an undergrad, I was a 24-year-old freshman going back to school to be a Bible major. And that first semester, I realized very quickly, now I want to do what he's doing, the guy who's teaching at the front of the class. And so I kind of felt like, Pastoral ministry and or academia was down the road uh, for me. And so, you know, as you know, that ends up being a 10-year process of getting a PhD or, or longer and all that kind of stuff. So I kind of knew where I wanted to go. And then it was just a matter of what was that going to look like? And during my grad work, I we were reading the Church Fathers. We were doing theology and historical theology. And I just kept coming back to, I love the doctrine of the Trinity. I think it unlocks so many things for me and how to understand salvation, how to understand the biblical storyline and things like that. And, uh, you know, people tell you if you're going to do a PhD and get a career in academia, find something you you love and that you want to talk about for a long time. And to me, it was kind of the intersection of the Trinity and Scripture and the Church Fathers. And so that ended up being my dissertation work and basically all the stuff I'm doing now. Yeah, obviously, given your dissertation work and the books and things that you've been publishing as of late, it's been fun to see you in kind of in the middle um, in many of the debates that we've had in recent years over the nature of the Trinity or understanding of the Trinity. But you all early on in the volume note that there's a great need not only to retrieve a biblical understanding of the Trinity, but also a need to articulate it, articulate it in our doctrine, especially also in our practice, orthodoxy and orthopraxy. I wanted to see if you could unpack this a little bit, because one of the things that I've, I've noted, even as I teach students the nature of, and doctrine of the Trinity, especially early on in some kind of intro to philosophy worldview classes, there's some hesitation at times, and I think at times even within the practice of the church, we downplay the nature and doctrine of the Trinity. One, because it's quite confusing. If we're really honest, there's a great mystery here, a beautiful mystery, but it is a mystery nonetheless. And we also don't see like the language of the Trinity. I think at some point in the volume, you all note, you know, you can't do like a word search and find all of the, you know, uh, instances of Trinity or, you know, the nature of one essence, three persons, a lot of that language isn't really found directly in Scripture, but the ideas are, are so prevalent, as you all show throughout this. Why is it so vital for both our orthodoxy and our orthopraxy in the contemporary church to really understand and to really delve deep into the mystery of the Trinity? There are a few things. I mean, one thing I tell my students is, at the very least, it is good to learn more about the God that you worship. So like loving God and knowing God is an end in itself, right? Uh, in a similar way, but but analogous way of it's good to get to know my wife or to get to know friends or other people. The, the relationship itself is in some sense an end in itself in the sense that you want to know and love people well. Well, how much more the God of the universe, right? So I kind of start with the doctrine of the Trinity is the Christian doctrine of God. And so there's that. I think also, I mentioned this to you earlier, but you know, understanding 
the doctrine of the Trinity, at least for me, and I think for people that I've that I've been able to pastor and teach and, and have seen kind of grasp onto these things, is that you really can't talk about the gospel or salvation without Trinitarian language. So I was just doing this last week in my Trinity class uh, here at Cedarville, you know, t- walking students through Galatians 4, for example, where it says that, you know, the Father has sent His Son and the Son has given us, you know, this ability to be adopted as sons and daughters through the Spirit. Uh, Ephesians 1, you know, the Father knows us and loves us and wants to have this relationship with us. And so he sends a son and his son gives us this inheritance and the Spirit seals our salvation. So I always tell students, you know, if you want to understand the, the sort of storyline of Scripture, which is ultimately God and the people that he is, he is you know, longing to save and to know, you're going to have to talk Trinitarianly pretty quickly if you're going to get beyond Jesus died for your sins, which, by the way, is great. You should, there's a sense in which you shouldn't get beyond that in your heart, right? But in your knowledge, if you want to understand the Bible better, if you want to get into real discipleship and growth, I think you have to better understand Scripture. And better understanding Scripture is going to require you to delve into the Trinitarian language and the Trinitarian shape of, of salvation. So I always come back to what is it that, who is this God that we, that we know and serve? Well, it's Father, Son, and Spirit. And why does that matter? Well, it actually helps us to understand how and why we're saved. Yeah, I like that, especially as you focus on the gospel message. Obviously, we're not supposed to go beyond that as Christians. We never, but we go a lot deeper in some sense. And we understand who Jesus is as presented by Scripture, as God has disclosed himself. And I think that's helpful even in connecting like the doctrine of the Trinity, even into the gospel conversation. It's to know who this God who has saved you by his son through the power of the Holy Spirit. How does that then play out in the life and kind of the ministry of uh, believers every single day? One of the ways that you all structure or what you as editor really structured this volume, it's kind of beautiful. You kind of do a background kind of the early church and its influence. You go through kind of contemporary challenges, but also some of the scholarship, contemporary scholarship on the doctrine of the Trinity. And then you really take a very biblical kind of canonical approach. You walk through kind of the Old Testament and a number of New Testament works. And I think that really speaks to how central this doctrine really is to all of Scripture. It's not a minor doctrine. I think sometimes it's not direct parallel, but I hear this in conversation about the image of God. Well, you see it early on in Scripture, then it's kind of downplayed. You see it pop up every once in a while, and then Jesus is the true image, and we kind of are done with it. But similarly, obviously, the Trinity to a greater extent is really central to the Scripture. It's a central not only storyline of who God is, but it really illuminates and shapes all of the Christian life and how we're to live in light of who God is and what he's done for us on the cross. I'd love to hear as an editor a little of the background on this work. Why did you want to assemble this cast of scholars to focus on this and why this type of volume? Obviously, there's a lot of work that's come out recently, but even historically on the centrality of the doctrine of the Trinity. So why this book and why now? Yeah, I think some of the books that I write and some of the ideas I have about books is typically something like when I was in grad school or I was in my PhD, what book did I wish existed, basically? And so like the Trinity in the book of Revelation, okay, I want to do a Trinitarian reading of scripture. Well, I've not seen anybody do it with the book of Revelation in a very clear way. And so my supervisor was like, hey, let's do that. Uh, My book with Lexham, the biblical Trinity, same kind of idea. You know, it's it's a very lay level introduction to the Trinity in Scripture, because I thought, you know, there's a lot of good intros to the Trinity, but nobody just says, hey, here's a bunch of texts, and let's just go through them and read them Trinitarianly. And so this book kind of came out of that, of what's a little bit more of a heftier, you know, something that a pastor or a student could get a hold of and say, hey, how, how do I understand the Trinity in all of Scripture? And so I think that's where I wanted to kind of shape, well, why do, why do we have the problem 
So the early church had no problem talking about the Trinity in Scripture. This was this was kind of the foundational point of everything they did. And then it kind of lost its way in the in the modern period in some ways, not as much as, as some people might say, but nonetheless, there was some some loss in the 20th century. And uh, so then I said, hey, let's let's have uh, Madison Pierce kind of survey where are we at? How do we get back to kind of having this conversation? Because Trinitarian conversation we're having about scripture is not it's not entirely new. It's just that people are finally kind of opening their eyes to it. And now there's this proliferation of books, like you mentioned. Uh, and so some of it was, hey, well, there's actually like 30, 40, 50 years worth of conversation that lead to this book that people are holding in their hands. So just want to give some sort of sort of historical background, especially again for pastors and students that might be interested in kind of that bigger conversation. Uh, and then really it's it's the bulk of the book is how does this work out in the Bible? And then at the end of the book, we have the how do you preach it? Why does it matter for liturgy? Why does it matter for apologetics? Uh, the apologetics chapter, you know, is really interesting. You know, Muslims deny the Trinity. They believe that they're monotheist. They're, they're monotheistic, but they don't believe in the Trinity. Uh, you've got Mormons who say that they believe in the Trinity, but then when you get down to it, it's nothing close to the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. And so I was just trying to have like a holistic touch on every area that we could to try to give people kind of a one-stop shop, kind of a handbook or a dictionary to say, okay, if you've got questions about the Trinity in Scripture, hopefully there's a resource in here for you. Yeah, I think you all really accomplished that goal. I mean, this is a really not only hefty resource, but it's also very approachable. That's something I noticed, and uh, obviously that's editorial, but also the the contributors that you selected really make it approachable. There's a depth, but also this kind of applicability to so much of what's being done here, and I think it's really helpful. I like the historical approach to kind of start it with Gerald Bray and obviously Madison Pierce that you've already mentioned. One of the things I wanted to see if you could kind of unpack for us, because I think for some of us, the Doctrine of the Trinity, either we haven't really thought about it a lot, and so this volume helps you to dig deep onto that. Some of us have thought about it so much that it seems to be kind of the paradigm through which we see everything. And there's some danger to that as well, obviously, with social Trinitarianism and others. What are some of the ways that we've seen the church, either historically or even contemporarily, misinterpret or misapply the Doctrine of the Trinity, or kind of see it as a lens through which we view every single thing, especially a lot of our human relationships? What are some of the dangers and maybe, I guess, some of the controversies surrounding how we think through the Doctrine of the Trinity in the life of the church today? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things you mentioned was social and, you know, social Trinitarianism takes a hundred different forms and it's hard to define, but there is a Something like, you know, people who who use human relationships as the way to understand the Trinity. Uh, so whether that's, you know, marriage type things where, you know, the wife submits to the husband just as Christ submits to the church and then or to, to God, and then that's kind of pushed up into the Trinity. You know, biblically speaking, that idea is more like Jesus, the son, submits to the father because he's human in the incarnation, which is a unique relationship. It's not an eternal relationship. The son has nothing to submit for or about in eternity. Uh, he has full authority and power because he's truly God. And so that's a danger, right? Like looking at our world or looking at ourselves and then pushing up into the Trinity. Uh, another one that was really popular in the 20th century was sort of the community aspect, right? So uh, just as the body of Christ is one and we're a community, so are the Father, Son, and Spirit. And so we understand God by our own relationships. And again, there, there's not, I would say there's not a bad impulse there in the sense that Paul does use the metaphor of the Trinity to talk about the church, like in 1 Corinthians, for example. There is a sense in which, you know, when Jesus prays to the Father in John 17, that we should love each other like he and the Father have loved each other before the foundation of the world, that there is a sense in which our love does mirror the Trinity. But we have to start with the Trinity and then 
you know, sort of accordingly, we live ourselves out rather than, oh, I know what God is like. God is like me and my friends, or God is like me and my church, or God is like me and my wife. That's not the picture of scripture. It's the other way around. We mirror God, right? So Ephesians 5, our marriage mirrors Christ in the church, not we understand everything about Christ in the church by looking at looking at our marriages, you know? So I think that the problem is you you end up with a social kind of program where you're pushing up into the Trinity and what ends up happening is you end up saying wrong things. I mean, that's kind of the most simple, simple way to say it, right? So you start saying things like the son is in some sense unequal in glory to the father because he submits to him. Well, that's, that's not right. In the incarnation, that's true because he's a human, but not the son as God. Or, um, you know, well, well, God just cares about the things we care about because God is really just cares about our social programs. Well, that, that may be true, but it isn't always true. Uh, and so you have to let who God is and let the scripture he's given you shape the way that you think about him. And then everything else flows from there. If you start the other way up, it just always gets into, I mean, there's, there's a million examples of this, but it, it almost always goes bad. I can't think of an example where starting with humanity and then making God in our image is ever a good idea. So, and we don't, we don't, and I think some people don't mean to do it. There's a good intention there, but it doesn't mean that it's okay to do it. Yeah, I think you're right on that. Cause I, I kind of understand the impulse in some sense, because we're trying, we're it, in some sense, what we're doing here is almost impossible we're seeking to use finite human language to describe this infinite eternal reality that we really can't grasp in some sense as the creature, you know, trying to grasp and understand the creator. But the scriptures also uh, replete with descriptions of who God is, is Carl Henry once said that uh, scripture is re- it's God's self disclosure. It's him revealing himself to us in part, but not in full. And so in many ways, even our human language and our attempts to understand fail to really grasp the internal nature, the the omnipotent nature of God and his uh, Trinitarian nature. But it's also very central. I think you rightfully say, you know, starting with the doctrine of God and who he is and has, how he's revealed himself, letting that inform a lot of human kind of human relationships, structures, even ethics itself. I mean, it's something we'll talk about here in a little bit. One of the things that I, again, I like about this volume is that you all kind of walk through and kind of do this canonical approach. Obviously, you take much of the Old Testament. He, Thomas, kind of addresses uh, the Old Testament itself, and you walk through a number of the letters. What's striking to me in kind of reading through this is that there's so many kind of baseline hermeneutical principles. And I think sometimes that when we approach Scripture, we kind of go almost kind of Lone Ranger, uh, we feel like we can just, you know, we'll, in some sense, Scripture is clear, um, and we can read it without having a lot of interpretive method. But in that sense, we're still bringing to it some type of paradigm or interpretive method. What are some of those kind of principles that help us to read Scripture well, especially in light of the doctrine of the Trinity? Because I think it's easy for us either to focus in one area and let that be the paradigm from what we see overall. But how do you take like a whole Bible, a biblical narrative approach to studying something like this, obviously vital theological doctrine? I always talk about the theological and canonical aspect of reading scripture. So theological is talking about God, right? Theos, logos, talk words about God, study of God. That's what theology is at its its very basic. So if you think about that, then you're starting with, okay, God is the subject matter of scripture. He is the author of scripture. He is the point of scripture. So in the beginning, God created and he spoke. That's the thesis statement for the entire Bible, right? That God is this God who has created and has revealed himself to us. And we listen to this one who has spoken. Canonically, you also have to think about the fact that because there is a divine author, 
yes, you have individual human authors. You've got the Bible written over, you know, perhaps 1500 years from a bunch of different authors. There's a sense in which like you want to read Matthew on his own terms because Matthew is a witness to Christ. He's writing in his own sort of way, sometimes uses his own language or his own stories about Christ. But the danger is you start, you know, sort of pitting the biblical authors against each other. One of the ways that we do this unintentionally, I think, is that we look at the Old Testament as obsolete and, okay, now we've got Jesus and the Spirit, we've got the Trinity stuff, in the New Testament, who cares about the Old Testament? And I've also, I've had many jokes and some real critiques about the fact that we only have one Old Testament chapter in this book. And that's, that's fair enough. I mean, the idea was Keith would do the Old Testament chapter and then everybody would deal with Old Testament texts in their New Testament chapters. And the idea there is that there's a sense in which the Old Testament, the way that Heath puts it in the book, I think is really helpful, is that the, the Trinity is both unveiled and unveiled. It's veiled in the sense that the mystery is revealed in the New Testament, in the incarnation of the Son and the pouring out of the Spirit. But it's unveiled in the sense that the New Testament authors can't talk about, we'll say it this way, they are only able to make sense of who Jesus really is by reading the Old Testament or by reading the Hebrew Scriptures. So how many times do you see Jesus claiming to be God? And he's doing it by quoting Old Testament passages or Old Testament themes. And I always tell people the way that you know that Jesus is claiming to be God is that the Jewish people keep trying to kill him for being a blasphemer, right? They know their scriptures well enough to know that he's claiming something like that. And so, you know, ha having a canonical understanding is like when he in John eight fifty eight says, before Abraham was, I am. If you don't have an understanding of Exodus 3, if you don't have an understanding of how God has talked about himself and revealed himself, you won't understand that Jesus is claiming to be God. And you won't, you'll be like, why are the Jewish people so upset? You know, um, well, it's because he's claiming to be Yahweh. And so I think that's where the, the theological point of this is about God and the canonical point of you have to understand the whole Bible on its own terms in its fullness to really understand the doctrine of the Trinity. That's where you can at least start getting down the road of, okay, these authors are all talking about the same God. This is the same God who's revealed himself. And the Bible is incredibly redundant and self-referential. And I always tell students, you might get bored sometimes by how redundant the Bible is, but that's actually the beauty of it, that it continues to reinforce itself. Old Testament quotes the Old Testament. New Testament quotes the, the Old Testament. Uh, you know, Peter calls Paul's letters scripture. There's this just self-referential internal thing that's happening there. So the better that you think about scripture, not as a bunch of historical pieces all put together that are really here to teach me how to live a better life. And instead, this is one story that the God of the universe is telling so that you can know him. Those are two very different ways of reading. And if you read in the, the latter way, the theological canonical way, you can at least start to get down the road of the doctrine of the Trinity, or at least the doctrine of the Trinity will make sense to you if somebody explains it to you. Yeah, I think you point out a really, there's a really important point there about there's a purpose to scripture. It's not just a story being told, but a story with a purpose. And I think sometimes even kind of we'll get to your section as you focus on uh, the book of Revelation. I think it's interesting. Sometimes we read these books with ulterior motives looking for something else and fail to realize what's the point of this? What is it doing? Not only pointing me to Christ, but there's a kind of a specific aspect, a, there an authorial intent that there, and then not only the human authorial intent, but obviously the spirit that guided as we read in Peter that carried these men along as they wrote uh, the very words of God to us. It's interesting, you note about kind of the Old Testament kind of joke, maybe not so much of a joke in terms of a critique. Um, it's interesting though, because, you know, just from a purely practical standpoint, uh, this would be a really long book if you had 66 chapters covering every single book of the the Old and the New Testament, along with your historical, along with your practical. In some sense, I don't know how many people would be picking up a two or three thousand page tome here uh, for us That's to walk through. That's already 500 pages. 
So it's I mean, a, yeah, it's a good sized book and it's, but yeah, there's just so much to unpack there. And I noticed even as I was kind of working through the volume, you really can in some sense pick up really anywhere, obviously, but obviously there's a larger kind of idea and story. So kind of understanding the beginning and the end, but you can kind of pick up in many of these essays one, because the nature of an edited volume like this, you can do that. But two, I think that speaks a lot of the way you've organized and kind of structured this. What are things that we don't have a ton of time to walk through, you know, line by line, verse by verse type of thing is I want to focus a little bit and have a question for you on your contribution. So obviously, you've done a lot of work on the book of Revelation, specifically the Trinity in the book of Revelation. Your chapter here is kind of building off of and gleaning from much of your research. You mentioned the work that you did with Lexham and others. I wanted to see if you could kind of briefly unpack for us, even kind of the very beginning of the book of Revelation. You focus on in chapter one, verses one through eight, and how this opening passage really sets up the overall argument that John is making from a deeply Trinitarian perspective. What are some of the kind of the high level kind of framing devices or ideas that we see in those first few verses that help us to better understand the book of Revelation? The reason I want to focus on that, not only because you wrote it, but often I think the book of Revelation is often one of the most misinterpreted books of the entire Bible. One, because we look for things that aren't there um, or we try to map things out with our old felt boards and stuff. If you uh, remember that from growing up in the church, uh, I was in and out of the church a lot. So I kind of I saw the dilapidated felt boards will say that. But what are some of those themes and those ideas that we see in those even just those first few verses that really helped to set up John's overall argument in this letter? Yeah, there's a doxology right at the beginning. So you've got this sort of, you know, basic introduction you always get about John and he, he's writing and God's told him to write these things. And then you get this doxology where you have uh, grace and peace from the one who is and uh, was and is and is to come uh, from the seven spirits and from Jesus Christ. And if you think about doxological language, if you think about a doxology, just like any person who goes to church, what do you think of? Singing praise to God right? Praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, something like that. Well, that's what the Bible has actually given you that language. The reason why you do that is because that's how the Bible talks about God. And so when you have a doxology, you always know in Scripture you're talking about God. God is the one who offers grace and peace. God is the one who gives us blessing. God is the one that we sing to. God is the one that we pray to. And so when Revelation opens with this doxology, you have the one who was and is and is to come, the seven spirits in Jesus Christ, now, if you've read the book of Revelation, like you mentioned, it's not as straightforward as you'd like it to be. You know, you read the Gospel of John and it's like, oh, the Father sent the Son and the Son sent the Spirit and the Father, Son and Spirit are all one. And it's just, it's all there. In Revelation, you've got all this kind of like coded type language. And really what John is doing is he's not trying to give you a sort of message to decode per se, but he's just writing an apocalyptic genre, which uses imagery and, and illusions and symbols in the same way that you might read a poem or something like that. And you recognize the convention of a poem is not always to speak straightforwardly. But if you understand what a poem's doing, you can make sense of it. So an apocalypse is a very similar type of thing. So that's part of it. So if you can kind of get the way I talk about it is you have to be able to speak John's idiom, right? What what is what kind of words is he using? What are the things he repeats? What are the the ways that he the conventions he uses? And the doxology and worship language kind of is the whole point of Revelation. It's about what is true worship of this God who sits on the throne. And then you've got the false worship of the beast and all these kind of things. And then you get the new creation where you have the throne. And so if you've got a sort of understanding of Revelation is about worship and you get this doxology right at the beginning, well, that starts to already shape all of the way that you're going to read Revelation. And so you ask for a simple answer. So the, the simplest 
clearest that I can give. Uh, I have a 200 plus page book on it if it, if it helps anybody. But um, is that, okay, if you've got that doxological language, then that limits the identity of the characters that you see in the doxology. So for example, the one who was and is and is to come. Okay, well, that's, that's God language. That's eternal language. That's Exodus 3 type language. Uh, I am who I am. It's the same kind of idea there. Well, you know that that person's not Jesus because Jesus is already mentioned. And you know that that person probably isn't the Holy Spirit since you've got the seven spirits there. So that's probably the Father. And this will come up again and again of you know God and the Lamb being on the throne. So you've got Jesus, you've got the Father, and then in the middle, you've got the seven spirits. And in scholarship, that's where the rubber always kind of meets the road on what you think is happening in Revelation. So a lot of people will say the seven spirits are angels or kind of generic spirits in some way, shape, or form. The problem with that is that these seven spirits are in the doxology. And these seven spirits come up several times. The seven spirits are also coming away from the throne of God uh, later in the throne room scenes in Revelation 4 and 5. And so it, it's really, you know, I'm, I'm trying to make it sound simple. It's not. But the kind of idea is, okay, the number seven is a number of completion throughout Scripture. Uh, it's a very, you know, very clearly when set, things and sevens are put together, typically that means that there's some sort of divine initiation or completion. And uh, if you've got seven spirits on the throne, again, you've got to be able to say, okay, that's not angels because angels don't get worshipped, right? In fact, uh, John tries to worship an angel in Revelation and he says, don't do that, I'm a servant, right? So you've already got in Revelation, that can't work. Well, you can't worship generic spirits. In fact, the Bible will tell you generic spirits sometimes aren't good spirits. So sometimes spirits are good and bad, so that doesn't work. So uh, if you've got the seven spirits as the Holy Spirit, it actually makes more sense of what's happening in Revelation. Uh, is include, the seven spirits are included in the doxology. So that's worship language, that's God language. And the seven spirits are included in the throne room scenes as the one who comes from the throne. Okay, so everybody else is facing the throne. So who's on the throne side of the, of the uh, heavenly you know, map there? It's the God, the Father, who sits on the throne. It's the Lamb, Christ, who sits on the throne. And then it's the Spirit who proceeds from the throne. And all three of them are on the throne side. Well, who gets to sit on the throne but God himself? Uh, so that's a very, very, very simple summarized version of it. But that doxology, if you understand that as worship language and you can identify those characters as those who are worthy of worship, you kind of get stuck with Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, and then as that seven spirits language gets repeated, you'll see it several times and be like, oh, okay, that's not just an angel. That's not just a creature. It's got to be something more. And then I think most people recognize Jesus is pretty obvious. He's receiving hymns. He's sitting on the throne, he's offering salvation. That's all God language too. So Trinitarian language, regardless of what book you're in, you're always trying to say, okay, if this person's being worshiped, if this person is doing things only God can do, that limits the identity. And this is the same thing happening in Revelation. Well, obviously there's so much more that can and should be unpacked there, uh, to say the least. I mean, we could do an entire season of just kind of focusing on uh, Trinitarian language in the book of Revelation. So I obviously encourage listeners to grab a copy of Trinity in the Canon, where you have that essay, but then also your other work that you, you mentioned. We'll mention that in the show notes as well for listeners uh, from Lexham Press about the Trinity in the Book of Revelation. I want to shift gears a tad, though, because I think at times there can be this kind of, okay, so what? Like, I understand this. I understand, you know, this is obviously central to scripture, but what bearing does this have? on my day-to-day -day life. Now, I think that that dichotomy, that attitude at sometimes is overplayed, but I also think there's a right impulse there of saying, I want to take my right belief and I want to put it into action. I want to take this idea of orthodoxy and have that orthopraxy, right practice, not just right beliefs. And I think that's very deeply, this. it kind of illustrates this beautiful relationship that we talk a lot about here on the podcast between theology and ethics. 
Um, I agree with Herman Bovink. He says that these are not materially different, but they're formally distinct and we should study them that way, that the beautiful relationship and centrality of theology and ethics. And in some ways you all do that even in this, as you kind of shift those last three chapters, kind of focus on some practical aspects, some outworking, some orthopraxy, obviously focusing on with Malcolm Yarnell's chapter on preaching, obviously Hill's chapter on worship. I wanted to see if you could maybe kind of introduce or kind of inform us, kind of help shape and under, help us to understand the centrality of this Trinity to the context of our local churches. Uh, we have pastors that listen to the podcast. We have parishioners. We have academics that listen to this podcast. What does this mean for the right practicing and even the administration of the sacraments in the church? How do we do that in light of how God has disclosed himself as Trinity? I mean, the sacraments is probably the most obvious place to start in the sense that for all of Christian history, baptism has been the entrance into the covenant community of God. Now, obviously, it takes various different forms, credo, pedo, Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, etc. But everybody recognizes that baptism is this sort of entrance into the church. It's a way of identifying yourself with Christ. Well, you know, if you think about the Arian controversy, this is kind of the historical example. It wasn't just that Arius said that Jesus wasn't God or truly God or fully divine. That was a problem in and of itself. That was a theological problem. But what Athanasius and others would point out is it's not just that you get the theology wrong, but now it affects something like your baptism, because the baptismal formula in Matthew 28 is you're baptized into the one name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. So like Augustine, Hillary, all these guys would say, if you don't understand the Trinity, at least understand that Matthew 28 is Trinitarian. You'll always get that at least. There's your baptism. Your baptism is a Trinitarian baptism. It's an act of worship. And so what Athanasius would say is if you deny that Jesus is God, then your baptism is nullified because you've been baptized into the name of a creature, and that doesn't work very well, right? But if you're baptized by the triune God into the name of God, by the power and authority of God, then you actually are, you can say, I am part of the church. I am part of God's family. I've been brought into the life of the triune God. And so I think that's where, you know, baptism being this Trinitarian shape is the most obvious sort of way that we we practice in the church. And so, you know, I've been at churches and been a uh, staff and member of churches where the triune formula is not said out loud during a baptism. It's, you know, do you love Jesus and do you want to follow him? Baptize, you know, and it's not that that's heretical per se, but for 2000 years, the reason why we've said you're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit is not just because that's theologically correct, but because it's biblically the way that we speak about baptism. And so there's an example where I would say, you know, a, a very fundamental thing. Like the Bible tells you to baptize in this way. And this way is a Trinitarian shape. And so when you're doing baptism, like that should be your default. That should be an easy, an easy Trinitarian way to be a Trinitarian uh, as a pastor is to baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's, it's right there. And then of course it shapes your preaching. It shapes the way that you teach text. Uh, I've already mentioned the way that you explain the gospel. You're not going to get very far without Trinitarian language. Um, if you're a pastor and you preach on let's say the crucifixion, and you say Jesus died for your sins, he's the perfect substitute, all the good things you should say. Somebody, if you don't say it already, somebody discerning enough is going to go, wait a minute, but didn't you say Jesus was God? How did God die? How can God be on the cross? That doesn't make any sense. You got to have some Trinitarian stuff there if you want to explain that well, right? And so I think that's where it gets really practical. And I try to tell my students here that are training for ministry all the time, like, you might think this is just theological eggheadedness, but you're going to have, you can't, I mean, as a pastor, sometimes you can say, I don't know. And you can, and that's real humility. Sometimes I don't know is an abrogation of responsibility to teach the word of God properly. And so you've got to be able to have, there's something, you've got to be able to have some sort of tools. You don't have to be a Trinitarian theologian 
or Fred Sanders or something, you know, or, or Augustine of Hippo. But you've got to be able to have that stuff because when you're preaching, you're going to be talking Trinitarianly if you're preaching the Bible well. If you're administering sacraments, you're going to be speaking Trinitarianly. If you talk about what is the community of God, where these people who have been brought into union with Christ by the Spirit to cry out to the Father as a church, well, that's Trinitarian. And so I think that's where it's going to get really practical for pastors really quickly. I think for, for the rest of, I mean, for all of us who are Christians, um, I always point to Romans 8. How, do, how does Paul talk about the Christian life? He talks about it in Trinitarian shape. In Romans 8, he says, you have been saved by the Son, right? There's no longer condemnation. You have now been forgiven. And then immediately he says, okay, well, how do you receive that work that the Son has done? How do you receive his atoning sacrifice? Well, you do it by the Spirit. And when you receive the Spirit, you can walk in the newness of life. Uh, you can cry out to God as your Father. Romans 8, 26, when you don't know what to pray, the Spirit prays on your behalf. And so again, I mean, if the Spirit is just some generic creature or some, you know, Star Wars force, he can't pray for you. But if he's a person, and if he's God himself, then he does know what to pray to the Father and on your behalf. He knows what to say because he, the Father, and the Son are one. Second, Jesus says in, in the Gospel of John, right, when I go away, I'm going to send you the Spirit, and he will teach you all the things that I have said. Well, how can he do that? Because he's God too. And so even for your practical Christian life, when you're laying in the bed and you think, I don't know what, if I'm praying right, I don't know if this is, if, if anybody's listening, I'm probably a heretic, I probably said something wrong, I'm not asking for things like I should, you know, this kind of stuff. You always have the reminder, who mediates for you? God himself, the son who mediates for you, who lives to intercede for you, as Hebrew says, and the spirit who prays on your behalf when you don't know what to say. And so if you've got a good understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity, even just as a Christian believer, Again, it's not just theological correctness, but it's actually like the depth of your own worship and your own spiritual life is that God himself has given himself so that you can worship him rightly. Yeah, there's obviously so much kind of beautiful truth there to unpack, um, and there's so much more that we could. But one of the things that really stands out to me through this volume, but even through kind of hearing your answer there is, as we want to preach and teach, we want to go about making disciples and pointing people back to God, we have to understand who God is as he's revealed himself, which is Trinitarian. So it's not a minor doctrine. We can't just focus on God generically. We have to focus on how God has revealed himself, which is deeply Trinitarian, which is going to inform every single aspect of our life from preaching, from worship, but even in terms of kind of a broader understanding of ethics. One of the things we do on this podcast, and I say pretty regularly, so much so that many listeners are probably like, yeah, I know where he's going with this. But I always define ethics as uh, what we do in light of who God is and what he's accomplished. So it's not that this idea that we're our works fuel that somehow create our identity is from a new identity, a new being a new creation in Christ that we go there for and do that we're Christ's workmanship created to do good works. And so when we think about the, the, what we do in light of who God is and what he's done, that also should take on a deeply Trinitarian nature. And that's one of the things that I loved about that kind of last section, especially um, in the very last chapter that Baggett wrote, he's really focusing on the nature of apologetics and defending the faith, but there are these moral concerns that kind of make their way in there. Now, one of the dangers, and we've talked about this, we've had other guys on, on the podcast talking about the doctrine of the Trinity as well. There has been kind of a, an abuse or kind of a, a bastardization of the Trinity itself um, in terms of the ethical or social approach of the church that has happened, uh, not only in terms of social Trinitarianism, but it kind of where we start to use the Trinity almost as a social program or a social lens. So I think there's that kind of ditch that we can fall into. 
But I, obviously, as a biblical scholar, I'm kind of calling you out of your area just a tad, but also I know many biblical scholars are well-versed kind of holistically. What are some of the ways that we can go about cultivating a distinctly Christian and distinctly Trinitarian ethic uh, for the nature and kind of the purpose of the church as we go there for and make disciples in light of, I always say, in light of the great commandment that fuels the great commission, that we are to love God and love our neighbors ourselves that goes into this idea of making disciples, what's maybe unique based on your study of the Trinity and scripture that makes for a distinctly Trinitarian ethic? Yeah. So like you said, I'll, I'll leave the, the super ethics conversation to the actual ethicist, but you know, something that at least comes to mind for me when I talk about this is, you know, your definition of ethics is, is great. It's very, you know, straightforward and very clear. I think biblical articulation, what, you know, what we do in light of who God is. So, thinking about, you know, just, just, so we're recording this on a Monday, just yesterday, I taught First uh, Peter one twenty one to 2.3 at my church. And the, the point there that Peter says is that what is it that bonds us together, but our love for one another, right? Have this sincere brotherly love for one another. And then of course, as he goes on in First Peter, he talks about how you love your neighbor. But where does he root all of his love each other language? It's in the very beginning of First Peter, where he says that you have a father who has foreknown you, you have a son who has shed his blood for you, and you have a spirit who sanctifies you. So that is the foundation for your ethics. That is the foundation for your love for your for each other and for your neighbor. The only analogy that I will ever allow when it comes to the Trinity is uh, is the analogy of uh, within reason and within be very very carefully is the way that Paul talks about the Trinitarian the unity of the persons that bond of love that they have is the love that we should have with one another. Uh, Jesus says it in John 17, Paul says it in several places. I think Peter is hinting at it as well in First Peter, that the love between the Father, Son, and Spirit is a pure, sincere, self-giving, uh, mutually glorifying love. And that's what we're called to do with one another, right? Uh, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are called to lift each other up, to bear one another's burdens, to, in a sense, like, glorify each other, edify each other, speak well of each other, right? Peter says, don't slander each other, uh, don't be hypocritical. Uh, don't envy each other, right? Well, that's not how how the Father, Son, and Spirit love one another eternally. There's this this self-giving, self-love, mutual glorification. So I think in that sense, again, with really clear handles, you can say something like, our ethics is ultimately shaped by our love for God and each other. And how do we know what love is? How do we know what true love is? By the love of the Father, Son, and Spirit for one another and the love that they show us, right? The sacrificial love of the Son who's been sent to us, the, the love of the Spirit who, who brings us into the family of God so that we can cry out to the Father. And so I always come back to, you know, if the, if the core of the Christian life is love and uh, charity, as Augustine would say, then ultimately that is going to be shaped by who God is, who defines what love is, and who models love for us properly. So I don't know if that's a proper, you know, philosophical ethics answer, but that's my that's my answer. Well, uh, most listeners will know I don't love the distinction that's often made between theological and philosophical ethics. Um, I understand it, um, and I, I think there's some uh, validity to that in many ways. But when I teach intro to ethics at Boyce, one of the things I try to do is to say it's a Christian ethic is deeply philosophical, but it's also it's very much deeply uh, theological. We shouldn't pit friends against one another. I think often that Colossians 2, 8 verse that gets kind of used as this is my little soapbox, but is used and abused to say that philosophy doesn't matter or we shouldn't focus on these things. It's talking about a particular brand of philosophy. Rightly defined, philosophy is the way of wisdom. And if we're seeking true wisdom, it's actually going to be rooted in the eternal God who created all things. 
Um, and so as we ask these deep questions and dig deep into these ideas, even in the nature and doctrine of the Trinity, it's God whom we find. It's the eternal creator God who made us in his very image. And if I'm not mistaken, I mean, based on that conversation, it looks like we need to have maybe another project that's talking about the doctrine of the Trinity and ethics. Maybe that's something, uh, some collaboration can happen in the future. Because I know, Brandon, you don't have, you don't really have a lot of projects going on. Uh, so, you know, just a few books here and there every, you know, five or something like six or seven years. So yeah. I will throw a little bit more onto your plate there. I've got a move and a baby coming. So other yeah, than that, little I mean, things, just little know, things, yeah. uh, nothing too big. So maybe we can work on that in a few years. But uh, one of the things I want to do, and we always do is we kind of wrap up our podcast here is focusing on some helpful next steps, next resources. And one of the things that I appreciate about the things that you've been doing throughout much of your ministry, but especially through CBR is reminding us of the importance of primary sources, digging deep into the tradition and retrieving a lot of these ideas. So I do want to start there, but also kind of what are some other resources that you would even recommend people if they want to pick up to dig deeper on some of these big Trinitarian themes? So some primary works, maybe some contemporary works that would help kind of further this conversation if people are interested in digging deeper. Yeah, I mean, the reason why we care about retrieval, too, is that, you know, and you mentioned it before we started recording, you know, Lewis talks about the importance of reading old books and hearing people speak in a different idiom than we do. It's that theology philosophy, like nobody, nobody saw that as a clear distinction for most of church history. When the early church talked about philosophy, they just talked about virtue and the way of living and how, you know, you know, worldview kind of stuff. And so it's good to read them because they will help you sort of see, well, where does this theology, interpretation, Bible, philosophy they're just swimming in those waters together, you know? Uh, so the early church is not a bunch of philosophers that are doing apologetics or cultural commentary. They're, they're Bible readers who are trying to talk about the world of ideas and how that impacts life. So a few, school, a few like you know, older resources, ancient resources that will help you with that. Uh, Athanasius' On the Incarnation is uh, probably the most classic. I make sure that every, basically every student I have here gets forced to read that in some way, shape, or form. I, find, I found a way to get it into New Testament lit and get it into church history and Trinity. But you know, what's, what's beautiful about that book is it's not just that it's old and we like antiques, as Fred Sanders says. It's not about just liking antiques. It's He talks about the incarnation in a sense of why was the incarnation important and why does it matter? And it's because God wants us to know him and he's come to reveal himself to us. And he'll talk about how if you understand the incarnation properly, then you're not afraid of death. You know how to live in the face of a world that's working against you. You know how to sort of how your ethics are supposed to go, how you're supposed to view your body, how you're supposed to view your soul, how you're supposed to view your neighbor. And so on the incarnation is a great place to find good Trinitarian theology that also talks about how it affects your life. Gregory of Nazianzus's uh, five theological orations, uh, they're printed by SBS Press as On God and Christ. That's kind of like the tour de force of ancient Trinitarian language. What people always get tripped up by is the fact that it's five sermons that he preached in a church, but it feels like a theological lecture, which is probably an indictment on us more than on him. Um, so I think On the Incarnation, uh, On God and Christ uh, by Gregory of Nazianzus, those are the two I'd point to as kind of a place to start. And then kind of modern works. I mean, Scott Swain just came out with an introduction to the Trinity from Crossway that's just wonderful. He gets all the, all the Bible stuff, all the church history stuff, everything's there. Uh, and Fred Sanders' Deep Things of God would be the other one, I'd say. So that, that'd give you four really good intros. Gregory's probably the hardest to read, so maybe read it last. But if you get the other three, you can at least kind of work your way through Gregory. But it's worth chewing on because it's, it's, uh, it's good stuff about the God that we worship. So 
Yeah, we'll make sure to link to all of those resources as well as the Trinity and the Canon, a biblical, theological, historical, and practical proposal, this new volume that you edited, Brandon, uh, with BNH Academic, as well as your uh, really helpful book that recently came out from Lexham on the Doctrine of the Trinity in the Book of Revelation. We'll make sure to link to all of those resources uh, in our show notes for listeners to grab uh, grab a copy of. But Brandon, I want to thank you, one, for your friendship um, over the years, two, for the work that you're doing, the great work that you're doing there at Cedarville, and then moving on to OBU here soon. Um, and I just really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us today here on the Digital Public Square. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, connect with Brandon and learn more about his new volume, The Trinity and the Canon, as well as the recommended resources we talked about in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the weekly tech email briefing that comes out each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology today, as well as life in the public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weekly tech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Research Institute at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Caden Christian and technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you and I hope you have a great week. Music.